What up, this is Dart Adams, and this is episode 43 of Dart Against Humanity. Today is the 25th anniversary of the release of what many people consider the greatest rap album ever recorded, uh, Illmatic by Nas. Uh, Nas was a highly touted MC in a class that was insane during the early 90s. I mean, if you look back at the class that Nas came up in, you have him from Live at the Barbecue. You have Biggie, who first popped up on the scene on Stretch and Barbito, December 91. Later gets signed. You have guys like Big L, first appeared on Yes You May. Um, you had cats like Busta Rhymes, who was part of Leaders of the New School. Grim Reaper, uh... Akinili, Fatal, it's just a laundry list of cats that came up, OC, that were highly touted, Redman, who was on um, EPMD's um, album, uh, Business, uh, Business as Usual, in 1990, late, I mean, the whole, that whole stretch is just full of guys that people were just looking at, like, yo, this is the next one, this is the next one, this is the next one, this is the next one. Jay-Z, you know, uh, uh, was doing uh, guest appearances around the same time. DMX the Great pops up. So, this is an era full of just talented cats coming up. And Nas was one of the guys, if not the guy of his era. Of course, positions switched and changed as these cats got closer and closer and closer to um, releasing albums. Another thing that we need to remember is that back in the days, the time between your first appearance on Wax and your guest appearances in your album was way longer than it is now. Think about Redman first appearing on, a, on two songs on EPMD's album in 1990. We don't hear his album for years. Nas, we first hear him on Live at the Barbecue, we hear him again on um, Back to the Grill, we hear him again on um, Halftime off the Zebrahead soundtrack, and we don't get that album for a while. You know, you hear Big L on Yes You May, we hear Devil's Son, we hear some other stuff, some other guest appearances. Think about how long it was until we finally heard Lifestyles of the Poor and um, Dangerous. OC, you hear him on Fudge Pudge with Organized Confusion. There's a stretch of years before we hear Word Life. The game was completely different. We heard Biggie December 1991. We don't get his album. I mean, we had a party and bullshit. We hear him on a bunch of niggas on um, Blue Funk, which is the Heavy, Heavy D's album. We hear him on mixtapes here and there. But we don't get the album until fall 1994. It's a completely different game. So when we look at Illmatic, we have to think that, all right, the story goes to Illmatic. Um, they started recording in 1992. Uh, there's differing accounts of how Nas was signed 
which during the research of an article that I'm actually doing right now, a piece that I'm doing, which is called um, An Alternate Take on the Perception of Nas's Illmatic 25 Years Later. It's at 3,500 words. I haven't yet finished it because I'm waiting for the final piece. Uh, someone uh, is supposed to give me an account, a differing account of uh, what happened before Nas got signed because the account this search gives is being disputed by several people. Um, so that's why I haven't posted it. Um, had I... Uh, Tried to do this article with someone else and I didn't have the article the way I wanted to or fully completed. I would have missed out on money. That's why I did it the way I did it. It's still in a draft on Medium. It hasn't gone up yet. The, the big thing is that th this weekend is big if you're a writer because, first of all, today is the 25th anniversary of um, Elmatic and tomorrow is the 20th anniversary of um, MF Doom's Operation Doomsday album, his debut album. He did a bunch of 12 inches leading up, and then he gives you the full album on Fondalum. It's a big deal, especially for cats in the underground, right there in the backpacker era, the underground era, between 1997 and 2002. After the mainstream and the underground rap world split, you know, you had the Rockets, Fondalum, uh, Soulside slash Quantum, that whole era, Stone's Throw, you know, there were a lot of classic albums that came out on the underground level. And I have to uh, make, this assert, uh, make this clear to people. A classic album is a classic album is a classic album. Just like a classic film is a classic film is a classic film. Sales or revenue do not necessarily dictate whether or not something is classic. A film could have bombed at the box office and been classic, whether it's a cult classic or a classic, the legitimate way everybody acknowledges it, the traditional way everyone acknowledges it. Same thing with albums. You can release an album that sold 10 15,000, 100,000, 150,000 copies. And it can be a classic. Over one that sold 3 million. Or you could have a classic, a classic album that went gold. Or platinum. Or double platinum. Or it could just be an album that went gold or platinum. Or triple platinum that isn't necessarily classic. I'm looking at you, Ja Rule. There's something we need to understand. In the case of Illmatic, uh, it took about two years of recording just to finish the nine songs that are on the album. And the album, the story I'm getting is that they had to just stop the process and like put it out story I'm getting is and this will all be in a piece that I'm doing around November 1993 is when they began sending out promo materials in, in, in the form of advanced cassettes to different outlets so November 1993 uh, from what I can gather the photo shoot for the album 
happened in December 1993. Okay. January 1994 is when they sent out the EPK for Illmatic, along with the video, which um, a Ralph McDaniel shot for uh, It Ain't Hard to Tell. And I believe uh, January 18th is also the same day that uh, they released the single for It Ain't Hard to Tell. Now, between January and February 1994, there was uh, heavy bootlegging. So they had to move up the timetable for the release of the album. But the thing is that it ain't hard to tell it was released January 18th. The album doesn't come out until April. So when I hear people talking about they had they were forced to move up the release date. They gave it a three month stretch for the for the song. It ain't hard to tell to climb up the charts and grow. They didn't release a second single. Until after the fact. So I'm cons- I'm like, wait, what? So they're talking about between January and February, they're realizing that the album, they need to get the album out. And I'm like, well, the album came out in April. So whatever happened, happened. But the thing is that when the album is released, there's a stretch of time where, okay, in March, they released uh, Gangstar's Moment of Truth comes out. Uh, April 12th, 1994, uh, MOPs to the death is released on select street. It comes out the day Illmatic drops. Illmatic comes out. And also I think Virgin releases, uh, Shaheem's AKA the rugged child song on and on's all over the radio, all over the video networks, everything. Now Columbia has put their machine in action to make sure that Nas got coverage in every major publication, magazine you could imagine. Awareness of Nas is high. Uh, There's the April 1994 Source magazine with uh, Gangstar on the cover. Gangstar had had the cover story. But the big story in there is, you know, Illmatic, the creation of a classic. And in that um, same issue is the five mic review was written by pen name Shorty was actually Minya O, a.k.a. Miss Info. That was huge because at the time, the source is seen as the definitive hip hop magazine, the Bible of hip hop, they called it. And to get that kind of stamp of approval was seen as, hey, this album is going to be out of here. It's going to be out of here. It's going to blow up. It's going to sell. It's going to do numbers. Forget that the circulation of the source was, I think, at the most about 250000 at the time. So the idea that the source could make or break you sales-wise is an interesting one. There are plenty of albums that sold very well that didn't get five mic reviews in the source. They probably got three or three and a halfs. And by the same token, it was very hard to differentiate what was classic from just good and really good during a, the middle of a golden era. 
if you think about the albums that came out in 1994, in just a stretch of two months, I've talked about um, Gangstars, Hard to Earn, uh, Nas's Illmatic, MOPs to the Death, and Outkast Southern Playlistic Cadillac Music. How do you determine what's classic when every week, every month, you're getting what turns out to be classic albums after the fact when the smoke clears? It's impossible. At the time we heard Nas's Illmatic, we did think it was a special album. We thought it was a great album. However, being a special album or a great album in the era of special and great albums... That makes it kind of tough. It's like when you're a competitor and you go and you have your circle of people and you go against them every single day and you practice and you fight them and you scrimmage them or whatever you do. And then you step outside and you compete against somebody else from outside of your circle and you're killing everybody in that outside of your circle. You're just walking through them. And you don't realize until later that the reason why you can walk through everybody else is because the toughest competition is right there in your circle already. And steel sharpens steel. This is largely why it was so tough to figure out what was a classic during that stretch of time between 1992 and 1996 was a golden era. Now, that's also to say that Illmatic, amazing album. I think this brevity makes for it being a, a better album. I think that it's great. It was supposed to be 12 tracks or whatever. It ended up not being as long because they had to supposedly rush it out. Um... But I think that's what made the album great. It reminded me of growing up with uh, eight tracks or vinyl or early cassettes between the late seventies and the early in the like early to mid eighties. And albums were seven, eight, nine songs, ten maybe. Anita Baker uh, made two albums between nineteen eighty six and nineteen eighty eight, eight songs each. I always tell people she went 16 for 16. The Times albums used to be six songs each when I was a kid. Six. They come on stage, they have 12 songs to perform, and they kill everybody. Jazz albums, some of them had four or five songs. So the idea that Illmatic having nine total songs on it was made it an EP or short. I'm like, think about the music Nas grew up with. Nas was relatively young when he released the album, but he was an old soul. His father was a jazz musician and a blues man. The music he gravitated to was the music that the older people listened to. So it makes sense that the album should be short. If I was to pull up some vinyl in my room, I'm sure none of those albums are really, really long. 
it makes sense. And plus, the thing that makes it all the more crucial when you have a short album is sequencing. Uh, if you look at the parallel between um, Illmatic and um, Doomsday, uh, one of the things is Illmatic starts off with a clip from the film Wild Style. Uh, the interesting thing about the clip from Wild Style is that I tell people this all the time. Everybody who heard that didn't know or instantly recognized the audio. For a lot of people, it was the first time them ever hearing any audio or dialogue from Wild Style. They never saw it. There was no way to get it. It wasn't airing on television. It didn't have a distributor. You couldn't rent it from the video store. The only way to get Wild Style, I remember back in 1993, 94, 95, was you had to buy it from hip-hop mail-order catalogs like the back of the source or from a graffiti magazine and usually it was from some corner of new york and new jersey or it was from overseas and the shipping and handling cost alone were insane so let's say it cost 25 dollars. do you know what 25 dollars is in in 2019 money you know how much 25 dollars was back then If you could find an inflation adjustment calculator, it would blow your mind. So nobody really had Wild Style. Nobody seen Wild Style. And a lot of people feel like they're too cool to come out and admit they hadn't seen it. So the idea of starting out the film with Wild Style was came from a conversation that Nas had with Faith Newman in the early process of getting the album together a process that took years which is insanity you can't take years really on the average album nowadays I mean you're not D'Angelo you're not Jay Electronica you're not going to be able to get away with that Another thing you have to understand is that Columbia Records took a huge chance on signing Nas and treating him like the artist he was, considering he was a rapper. There are a few things that come up with uh, the Columbia machine that I've addressed in this piece, which again hasn't gone up yet. Uh, One of them is the idea that It was Illmatic that changed the entire rap game forever by having uh, big name producers, multiple big name producers on one album. I kind of, I push back at this assertion because there are plenty of albums. When you go back through, let's say, 1988 to 1992, where there are a bunch of Big name producers, well-regarded hip-hop producers on the same album for for an up-and-coming artist. I've highlighted a bunch of them in the piece, which again hasn't gone up yet. But just the idea that, think of it like this. Illmatic came out in 1994. 
the first rap albums were released, really, in 1984. Are you telling me that the first 10 years of rap albums being released in between 1986 and 1989 is when rap albums are released more frequently, more and more frequently, as that is the first golden era. Between 1984 and 1994, no one was releasing albums with multiple well-known producers. Nobody did it. I think they attributed to Nas or Illmatic without realizing the context behind it. The context behind it was the budget for Illmatic being that the machine was Columbia Records allowed for them to pay these producers to put out this project which they then pushed usually when you had a project like that you had one person helming it typically so you had your Marley Mall you had your LA Posse you had Dr. Dre you had the Bomb Squad which was a team But there were plenty of albums throughout the stretch of years where you had a Prince Paul, a Daddy-O, a KRS-One, you know, Pete Rock, Teddy Riley, just names, DJ Mark the 45 King. You had Lord Finesse, Diamond D, DJ Premier, Buckwild, Showbiz. Just guys, just names of people that would just appear on the album. So the idea that like it wasn't until Illmatic where that happened is largely because of the hype and the promotion that Illmatic got. And a lot of people who weren't around back in the day who just latch onto this idea. It's annoying. But yes, um, Illmatic, I put it up there with one of the greatest all time um, rap projects ever. Uh, possibly the best. Again, the younger generation who didn't grow up with Illmatic like I did. I was 18 going on 19 when Illmatic came out. It came out April 1994. I turned 19 August 1994. So my perception of Illmatic, it came out uh, at the end of my 11th grade year. is completely different than somebody who was younger. Someone who was younger, they were more into it was written than Illmatic. They missed Illmatic entirely. Illmatic did really well when it initially came out. Uh, the next week, I believe, Outkast came out. It started selling better than it. Other albums started selling better than it. It didn't go gold until January 1996. Although it initially came out hot. And what people, when people look at the year 1994, what they tend to forget is that 1994, you have context. It's split into two separate things. Um... 1994 starts in January, right? 
Between January and June is the end of one school year. Then you have summer break. Then September is the beginning of another school year. That's how you have to look at Just like a side A and side B of an album. That's how you have to look at the times these albums are released. So when you look at 1994, you instantly weigh Illmatic versus Biggie's Ready to Die. I was in the 11th grade when Illmatic came out. I was a senior when Ready to Die. My beginning of my senior year when Ready to Die came out. Just in that stretch of months, my mindset is different. Then you also have to remember that Illmatic came out during the spring going into the summer. Ready to Die dropped in the fall as it was getting cold. And the colder it got, the more units that album sold. Ready to Die is an all-time great album, but it's also an all-time great winter album. Illmatic became considered a winter album later. So, but also when you look at the the, uh, parallels between Illmatic and... um, Operation Doomsday, they both use Wild Style. Um, Doom used Wild Style very differently. He used different parts of it to highlight the uh, the idea behind him hiding behind a mask and him having a dual identity. Which, if you're a graffiti writer, is something that's like really big. The world doesn't know who you are, and revealing who you are to the world, that idea... And Wild Style was what he really leapt on. And then he incorporated uh, the 1967 Fantastic Four cartoon, the Hanna-Barbera cartoon, which I didn't see in this uh, original incarnation. I saw it as a Gen Xer on Hanna-Barbera's World of Super Adventure. The music from both uh, the Fantastic Four cartoon... And also the music from um, Spider-Man's Amazing Friends were things that uh, Doom flipped a lot. He also famously flipped the Scooby-Doo theme song for Hey. So the difference with Doom was he was putting out independent vinyl through Fondalum uh, between 1997 and 1998. And the releases got more and more popular, more pressings, to the point where in 1999, you just knew that we needed an album from Doom. We didn't call him Doom then, we called him MF Doom. Uh, the time, like, Doom, the idea just Doom, came from um, the Fantastic Four cartoons when Reed Richards would say, it's the time we face Doom. He would just call him Doom, because again, Victor Von Doom last name the anticipation for that album was huge because again we love the singles he re-records the singles to make it work better with the album the sequencing of Operation Doomsday crucial the skits crucial the, tra- the transition from going from these are a bunch of singles to now I'm going to incorporate these singles into a full project. Top to bottom, I believe it was 17 tracks. Insane. Changed a lot of stuff. Made a lot, gave a lot of people a blueprint for what to do 
as artists, if they're coming from like the world of making independent music to trying to incorporate these songs that are popular, that people are copying through um, different underground hip hop outlets into a, a, to a full body of work. See, uh, we were actually buying Doom. Uh, at the time, I was buying Doom vinyl from a variety of places. There was, again, the Tower Records, uh, Mass Ave, and Newberry. Across the street, we had a place called Biscuithead Records. Biscuithead also released some um, uh, obscure vinyl releases from Edan, um, Porn Theater Ushers, other cats of that nature. Um, then there was UndergroundHipHop.com, which wasn't too far off. We used to buy stuff from. I used to buy stuff from Sandbox Automatic online. This is back in the days, by the way, this is 1999. So um, when I had to buy stuff online, um, I had to wait until late at night when I knew no one was going to call the house. This is in the dial-up days. If you did use the internet back in 1999, you got on, got what you wanted, and got off. Because you wanted to get off before you were kicked off when someone calls you. And the thing is that you used the internet till you got your information, turned the internet off, went back to using your computer the, the normal way. And I would uh, I would go on um, different sites. I would uh, <laughs> print the screen. I would let the screen print, whatever, get it, have it, and then I would get off the internet. And then I would take that printed screen and use that information in the real world. It was a completely different time. If you did order something online, you had to do it quick. Unless you did it like at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, which is what I used to do. But Operation Doomsday is a staple underground hip-hop album for 1999 uh written a piece about it 1500 words it'll go up tomorrow it's actually done i don't have anything else extra on it it's called um mf doom operation doomsday a 20th anniversary retrospective it's going to be on medium again still waiting to post um an alternate take on the perception of nazis omatic 25 years later i am actually just like how many words is it? I'm scrolling down right now. A lot of research went into this. I actually spent three straight months trying to get all this together. Uh, there's a lot of links. Uh, yep, it's at 3,500 words. So the thing is that it's an update of a piece that I did five years ago for um, Hip Hop Wired. The issue is that when I did the piece for Hip Hop Wired uh, five years ago, uh, these, the last two pieces I did for Hip Hop Wired five, two, uh, five years ago were these two. These are both updates. To commemorate the fact that these are the last two pieces I did for Hip Hop Wired before 
uh, they told me that they were going to reduce my rate by 66%. I fought them. I've mentioned this on a previous podcast. I fought them tooth and nail online in public and embarrassed the shit out of them to the point where they paid me my full money. And then I left them. But I just feel like the spirit that I wrote those pieces in, it kind of completely uh, diminished the idea behind the two pieces because, again, I had word counts. There were things I couldn't do. Uh, They used pagination. They didn't allow for certain links. They put in their own. Uh, they put in their own links. Sometimes they allow for different hyphenations or spellings or capitalizations that I didn't necessarily agree with. I had an excellent editor there at the time, um, Alvin Blanco. But again, sometimes uh, relationships run their course. It happens. It happens. Um, it. it you could have a, a a hit TV show on a network or whatever, and things just run their course. You could be great on a uh, a label as an artist, but you know sometimes that relationship just it just doesn't work out for whatever reason. The time is gone. Um, <clears throat> there were warning signs again, um, and I saw the writing on the wall. But when it came, I didn't think it would come that way. I didn't think it would come from, yeah, we can't afford to pay you for your quality writing anymore. So we're going to pay you less. How I would have preferred for it to go down. I would have preferred that they say, all right, past this month, we're not going to retain you anymore. But we're going to pay you your full rate for this month. And then you can go seek seek uh, opportunities elsewhere that's what I would prefer to happen I didn't like the idea of sending an email on a day uh, where it was uh, April Fool's Day when I got the email that said hey we're cutting your rate are you okay with that no one would be okay with that no one would be okay with that If someone walked into your job right now and said, hey, this job that you do that you're excellent at, that we actually brought you on to do, that we've had you do for years, rather than give you a raise, we're going to cut your rate by 66%. You're okay with that, right? No one, no. So I feel like one of the things I really had to do was, again, write these pieces. Uh, I had to do them justice. Uh... 25 years after Illmatic came out, it's interesting because now we have uh, this album being covered by journalists who didn't buy it initially. And I need to stress something. Everybody didn't buy it initially. By initially, I mean at least between 1994 in late 1995. I mean, it didn't go gold until January 1996. And 
it didn't go platinum until after he'd released it was written and people went back to it but they preferred it was written which is kind of insane to me when you look at Illmatic versus it was written it's not like um what's a good example oh, I got you the Terminator versus Terminator 2 Judgment Day you can argue that Terminator is essentially an indie <laughs> um, it's an indie character based uh, romance film with science fiction thrown in it is if you think about it whereas Terminator 2 Judgment Day is a sci-fi blockbuster but I'd also argue that as a film Terminator 2 Judgment Day might arguably be better as a film overall than, Termin than the Terminator so I don't think that that comparison works also another comparison I don't think works is if you take Alien versus Aliens Alien kind of an independent low budget sci-fi cult classic film versus Aliens which is a sci-fi blockbuster which is also a classic and arguably a better film than Aliens we can't do it with Star Wars either I don't even like watching the original Star Wars versus Empire Strikes Back Empire Strikes Back is superior in every way shape or form to Star Wars and this is the problem with Illmatic versus it was written I see Illmatic versus it was written more like The Matrix versus The Matrix sequel The Matrix was hugely original and inspirational. <clears throat> it was the impetus for people to make more art like it. It changed the game when it came out. And the sequel fell short of the foundation laid forth by its predecessor. That's how I look at Illmatic. Illmatic raised the bar all the way up here. Problem is, that bar didn't allow for people to want it to become commercially successful or, or, or make it something that was as commercially viable as what Biggie did. Biggie essentially took Illmatic and the chronic took his spin on it and made ready to die which blew up then you listen to something like um only built for cuban links only built for cuban links took what illmatic did what the chronic did and what ready to die did and then flipped it on its head and bam 
only built for Cuban links. Then along comes Jay-Z, who looks at the lineage of the chronic, Illmatic, only built for Cuban links, ready to die, and says, I'm going to take all that influence and then put my spin on it. And bam, what do we have? Reasonable doubt. It's just a chain of inspiration and impetus and creative energy that makes this timeline of great art be created all on this continuum. And it's just that inspiration that that just keeps feeding and feeding and feeding and feeding more uh, great art. Somebody has delayed the first brick. Somebody has to begin the relay race. That's what it's all about. And I believe the Illmatic is a huge part of that, especially for this era. However, I do cite that where how people look at Illmatic for changing everything and this aesthetic and everything. I believe that there's an album that a lot of people are leaving out of the discussion. Uh, again, it's going to be covered in the piece. Uh, there was an album released back in 1990. That was produced mostly by members of um, DITC and um, DJ Premier, who I kind of consider family, DITC family, in a lot of ways. Uh, the album, again, is called um, Lord Finesse and DJ Mike Smooth, um, Funky Technician. If you listen to that 1990 album, in many ways, the foundation of the aesthetic that Nas, did you hear Nas, um, Nas uh, use for Illmatic was laid down like four years earlier. But again, this isn't something that people are going to know offhand. For the most part, the people that are covering Illmatic and talking about Illmatic are people that were not adults when Illmatic came out so they're basically going off Illmatic is an album that everybody across the board agrees is a classic even if they don't necessarily love it like that themselves because they don't necessarily relate to it in that manner how could they they weren't around it's not their taste people don't play Illmatic at the gym they just don't. You don't play Illmatic at the club. You don't. And that's how people equate what's great. For the most part. When I think of Illmatic, I think of it the same way I regard great high art. The problem is that... There's the stigma where high art is considered pretentious or boring or elitist. And I think that's one of the big issues with Illmatic today. People look at Illmatic and they're like, oh, you expect me to try to make that? Oh, that's your idea of a great album? Who can make that? Well, this has been the dilemma from the dawn of time. Someone raises the bar super high and here we are, us mortals, 
having to reach that height. When I began writing, I read great authors, great writers, and said to myself, I'll never be able to achieve that. I can't write like them. I can't, I can't use language that way. I can't be that descriptive. I can't write prose that way. What can I do? There's more than one way to skin a cat. I hate that phrase, but that's what I'm saying. So you don't have to make an album like Elmatic, but you need to understand that you have to aspire to greatness the same way that Nas and those producers and those uh, executive producers and all those people that worked to get him signed wanted him to make that classic album for the culture or for the art so that there would be a brick laid for the foundation for people to come forward and that will always stand the test of time as an indelible reminder of the power of great art of classic material It's the same case with Doom, who released Doomsday. Again, um, I'm going to try to finish the Nas pieces sometime today. I'm not. I got another 12 hours, you know. So at some point, I want that. I want that Nas piece done. Uh, when it's done, I'm going to hit everybody with it. Hopefully it happens within the next few hours. Um, tomorrow, midnight, I'm going to drop the... Um, the Operation Doomsday Joint on Medium. Again, I would have loved to sell these pieces to somebody, but I just didn't feel like I would be able to do them my way and do them justice if I tried to sell them to somebody. I want to do whatever I want to them. The next pieces I do, I'm going to I'm going to um, reach out to whomever. And again, there's sometimes you want to reach out to outlets and put it somewhere new. I'd prefer to work with people that already uh, direct deposit me, <laughs> have my account number and pay me quick and on time. I'm at that age where that's what I um, value more. It's what it is. So one.